1: Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside Church.
2: First John four one that these people are false prophets, and First John two twenty six and three seven that they are those who try to deceive; that they are antichrist. In First John two eighteen, he pointedly identifies the ultimate source of all defection from sound doctrine as demonic. In First John four one seven, when it comes to heresy. John is just as a tough a customer as the Apostle Paul and as Jesus Christ. I can
0: see the promised land Though there's pain within the plan There is victory in the end Your love is my battle cry The answer for all my life
1: That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, these things have been written, so that our joy may be complete. Well, hello and welcome to today's edition of the Grace to Live radio broadcast with Keith Crosby, Senior Pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are so blessed that you've chosen to spend time with us today on the broadcast, and as always, we would encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles if you can. On today's edition of Grace to Live, Pastor Keith begins an in-depth look at the book of 1 John with a teaching series entitled, That You May Know. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with us today to the book of 1 John, chapter 1. Now here's Pastor Keith with today's study.
2: Father, we thank you uh, for your word. It is truth, truth itself, Lord. It doesn't contain the truth. It is truth. Sanctify us, separate us, refine us with that truth. Lord, as we jump into 1 John and get some of the preliminary background work out of the way today, Lord, uh, just help us to be prepared to listen to, to read and respond to what you have to say to us Through the Apostle John. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When a first responder comes upon an injured party, they ask them questions. And sometimes the questions might seem odd. Sometimes the questions might seem vague. Sometimes they say, can you hear me? Obviously, that's an important thing because if somebody is unresponsive, that can be a real issue. Uh, but other times they ask them questions that might seem particularly vague, but all questions are good, and if you really think about it, the answers to the questions reveal a lot about the condition of the individual. Their speech, for example, will mirror uh, their condition. If if their breathing is fast and weak and shallow, they'll answer with short words, uh, Short statements. uh, They'll speak quickly and quietly. So it doesn't matter what you ask them, but how they respond, what their speech sounds like tells you a lot. If their breathing is slow and deep, then their speech will will sound deeper, and there'll be longer pauses between each word, and that tells the first responder or the ER doctor something. And again, all questions are good because the questions are revealing. The same is true with individual Christians and Christian churches. How we respond to situations, how we respond to each other, we talked about some of that last week, reveals a lot. The way people speak and respond and that what churches emphasize tell you a lot about the spiritual condition of an individual life or a church family. You might say the speech is a litmus test, the Conduct is a litmus test that gives you insight into the spiritual condition, maybe into the lack of teaching that a church has received, or maybe there's something in the lack of spiritual growth of an individual. First John, first John is sort of a, a, a litmus test for believers. It's, uh, it, it provides us with a series of diagnostics or self-diagnostics by which we ascertain, by which we determine or distill what our spiritual condition or the spiritual condition of someone we love might be. And you have a lot of these, uh, by this we know. By this we know if we are in him, we love the brothers. You have a lot of the, by this we know statements. These are what some call in 1 John the tests of life. There are a lot of if-then statements you know, if we say we believe in him, we should walk like him. And so 1 John is an important, is a, is, a, is, a, is a critical epistle that really helps us look into our own souls and answer the question, where do I stand? In terms of eternity, perhaps, in terms of spiritual growth, in terms of the need to change. And so we enter into this study you know, it's coming off of the heels of our lengthy study on Revelation and other studies, the Sermon on the Mount, the, the Ten Commandments. And First John, I think, is a nice kind of punctuation uh, mark to the first phase of my ministry here. And, uh, and I think it's coming along at a good time in the era in which we live in terms of churches and people. So before we get any further into 1 John, this is our introductory sermon, and I want to take you through some of the background work. We have to, for lack of a better descriptive term, get this out of the way so that we can understand 1 John better. And so, 1 John, when was it written? Uh, it, It appears to have been written in the late 80s. And no later than the early 90s A.D., John is at the end of his ministry. He's getting toward the end of his life. This is prior to his arrest as an enemy of the state of of Rome, prior to his incarceration on Patmos, prior to receiving the revelations of Jesus Christ about the end of the age. This harmonizes with the teachings of the early so-called church fathers, Polycarp and others like Papias, Polycarp was a student, a disciple of John, and it seems to indicate that after, the Jew, after Christians were run out of Jerusalem in the, in the late 60s, like around 65, 67 A.D., they scattered, and John was no different, and this is prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. And so John traveled to key cities, the cities that he mentions in the letters to the seven churches to uh, check on these churches before winding up in Ephesus prior to his exile to Patmos. A lot of people like to say, well, how do we know John write this? Because you say it's an epistle, but it doesn't start off like Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It doesn't. It's probably what they call a circular epistle, in that it's circulated among several churches. But the genre, uh, the structure of it, indicates that it is an epistle. Somewhat atypical, again, it's a circular. It was meant to be taken from church to church to church. You kind of see that also with Revelation a little bit. People, and usually they have an agenda, try to dispute a Johannine uh, authorship. But when you look at Revelation, where he names himself, and you look at some of the words that are common to the Gospel of John... Jesus is called the Lamb of God. Jesus is called the Word. There's the themes of light, life, and darkness. You look at 1 John, you see very much the same terminology. Each of the three, each of the, the epistles and the gospel and revelation all have different purposes, so their terminology does vary. Just like if we were talking about doing the dishes over here or cutting the grass over there, we wouldn't be using the same terminology terminology all the time, but there would be common themes, and you see this all through the Gospel of John. Now, what 1 first, first John also is, is a call to the fundamentals of the faith, or a call back to the basics of Christianity. The apostle here is writing to refute false teachers, a people called Gnostics, I had entered the church. It was an early form of Gnosticism. But what is Gnosticism? Gnosticism is a belief system. It's not how you live that indicates where you're headed. It's what you know. And so the Gnostics were all into uh, secret handshakes. If you think of the uh, some of the cults today, they have their secret passwords and secret handshakes. That's who the Gnostics were. Consequently, they went in one of two directions. They either They said that the body was evil and the spirit was good, so you could do anything you wanted to do with your body. So they lived very disorganized, very unspiritual, very sexualized lives in Ephesus. Or they were like monks. You know, they didn't marry. You know, they moved out in the middle of nowhere and lived ecstatic lives, you know, and, and we know that's not biblical. And we see some of that around today even, right? We see all of this around today, actually. When you read the gospel, uh, excuse me, 1 John, what you see here is that John is intent on dealing with these kinds of things. But The Gnostics taught that Jesus couldn't be God because God would never take human form and that Christ only looked like a person. There's just all these crazy ideas that we would laugh at today but are working their way back into the church at some level too. And so... John is dead set, the son of thunder. Remember, that was one of the nicknames that he had. He has no tolerance for this type of philosophizing. And what he does is express the absolute character of Christianity in very simple and blunt terms, leaving no doubt for the fundamental nature of these truths to the faith. And anyone reading the Gospel of John and paying close attention to to John as he writes notices two things about the epistle and I keep saying the gospel of John it's 1 John I'm sorry one is is that the epistle is at once pastoral reassuring comforting and second is it's rather polemical fiery because he's got no patience with heresy and neither should we John is my kind of guy the apostle reassures his people as pastor of the certainty of the assurance of their salvation. And that's why we named the series, By This We Know. By This We Know that we are in him, that we are in Christ. Because he wants them to understand their faith with certainty, to understand the promises of God as they apply to them with certainty, rather than being upset by false teachers and the departure of some from the church at Ephesus. John writes, to restore their joy and their peace by giving them certainty, these tests of life which should reassure them. The apostle, as a polemnist, writes with great intensity, labeling these people as false teachers, as antichrists, little a, as the source of their teaching as demonic. He has no patience for that because remember this... (laughs) If you're a Christian, you believe that Christ is the Son of God, God the Son, God in human form, the Savior of the world, and there is salvation in no other name. There's, you're either in or you're out. You don't get to negotiate, you don't, know, any of this, and that's where John is. And so he writes with this real intensity. You know, it's, it's funny, I was also looking at the book of Galatians, in Galatians 1, 8, and 9 It really, in a way, even though it's a different epistle, summarizes the intensity of John. What does Galatians 1, 8, and 9 say? It says this. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Galatians 1, 8, and 9. It goes on to say in verse 9, as we said before... So now again I say if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive let him be accursed. That's pretty intense, right? Because twice he says if anyone brings you a little modifies the gospel let him be accursed. If you wanted to make it less poetic says damn him. And he says twice in two two verses damn him. That's what John does when he says in uh, 1 John 4.1 that these people are false prophets, and 1 John 2.26 and 3.7, that they are those who try to deceive, that they are antichrist in 1 John 2.18. He pointedly identifies the ultimate source of all defection from sound doctrine as demonic in 1 John through 7 When it comes to heresy, John is just as a tough a customer as the Apostle Paul and as Jesus Christ. So, one, uh, once again, the overarching purpose of 1 John is to assure or reassure us of our salvation. It's as if he doesn't want us to miss out, so he gives us a series of diagnostic tests. There's diagnostic language because a proper belief in Jesus produces obedience to his commands, a transformed life, and a fervency and a willingness to go wherever Christ would lead us. Complicating all that were the Gnostics. Because they said it doesn't matter how you live here. I mean, you're safe if you have higher knowledge. If you can do the work in your mind... You're saved, so live any way you want. This is, John isn't having any of this. We saw this even in our, in our own times, right? In the 80s. You remember the 80s and the 90s? The myth of the carnal Christian? You know, you could live how you wanted to. You could talk how you wanted to. That just meant you were a carnal Christian as long as you prayed a prayer. John is saying just the opposite of that heresy. So, with that, let's get into the text. And as we do, today we get into 1 John 1, 1 through 4. And what you're going to see is, is how he pours water on those types of ideas. And what we have here, this is one of the identifying marks when John writes, he always gives a prologue to, to the, whatever he's writing, whether it's the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 18, or whether it's this epistle of 1 John, verses 1, 1 through 4, or even Revelation, he gave a prologue. And so let's read the prologue here together because what it's going to do is identify things for you to keep an eye on. And I think as we read the prologue, you'll see the similarities between John's gospel, the book of Revelation, and First John, and understand that John is, in fact, the author. So First John 1, 1 through 4 says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard... Which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon or gazed intently at, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be made complete. Now, there is some debate here, because in the Greek, the word for our and your, and some of these manuscripts look awfully similar. And so, if you were to read the New King James, maybe it would say so that your joy may be made complete. Doesn't change the meaning of the passage. What's going on here? First of all, he's totally blowing up the whole Gnostic idea that the flesh is bad because they touched Jesus. He's saying he came in the flesh, he was revealed to us. There's no hidden knowledge here, there's no secret handshake, no password. He was the physical God in the flesh. You know, we live in an era where we say there are plural truths in many ways, in many ways to God. But here he's talking about the word of life, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You have this concept of the word, the the physical expression of God. And it's not a word, it's the word. And he's saying, this is what we're going to be telling you about in this epistle. Because we want you to be connected to us because we're connected to God. And you can connect to God through us, through this gospel, through this message. That which was from the beginning. In the the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is who we heard our message from. This is what we have seen with our own eyes, have touched, have handled, it says in some translations. This is what we proclaim. This is what we proclaim to you. And you know, it's a pity the way that we treat the word fellowship today. You know, I almost wish they didn't use it here because we think of fellowship as something social. A better word would be partnership. Koinonia doesn't mean we hang together at potlucks. It's got nothing to do with that. And, you know, 80s and 90s Christianity really got into that whole thing. It was an era of not a great deal of discernment, unfortunately. But he wants you to have connection with him and his gospel ministry. Partnership, and his partnership is with God in Christ. And so your joy is complete, is made full is completed, their joy is made completed through your salvation, through your transformation, and your ministry in the gospel. That's what's going on here. There's nothing secret, nothing hidden there. John John is writing in this first epistle, 1 John, because he's got something to say to you, to me, to the church. And he is driving his point home. You know, the other thing about 1 John is this. Like the Gospel of John, the thesis statement comes near the end. And the thesis statement for 1 John is found in 1 John John 5, 13. I write these things to you so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. Many of the Christian-sounding world religions The dominant one always tells you you can never be sure of your salvation you got to keep on doing these sacraments you got to keep on doing this you got to keep on doing that all the other cults do the same thing too you can never be sure it's faith plus works that's not what John is saying here John is saying you're saved by faith the faith will produce works but the works don't save you and so what we have here in the opening four verses They sort of set the table for the discussion that's going to follow, the tests of life that we do well to take and consider just to make sure to check ourselves, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, to make certain that we're in the faith, to diagnose the spiritual condition of ourselves and others as well, and to be reassured. You know, a lot of people come to me and say, oh, I'm just not sure of my salvation. Assurance of salvation has nothing to do with how you feel. It has to do with the faithfulness and promises of God. These tests of life may help you confirm things. So, over the next 14 to 15 weeks, let's let John be our teacher. Let's let John be our diagnostician. And let's dive into the study because John has a lot to say to us about ourselves, our faith, our lives, our ministry, our joy, our peace. So how can you get the most out of this series in the, in the months ahead? What I'd like to do today is to give you at least three things that you can do to get the most out of this series. The first thing that you can do, starting with is this, is to know who's telling you all this. To wrap your mind around who the author of this epistle is and what he's seen and where he's been and what he knows for sure. This is not some armchair philosopher. You know, there are some people who've never read a book that they didn't like to the point that they've got no discernment and they'll just incorporate all kind of gobbledygook into their faith. Their faith looks like an ugly, incompetent quilt.